one of the most difficult of God's judgments that uh, we must agree with is the judgment that God will make through all of eternity in hell. So we're going to look at that subject in Luke chapter 16. I want you to turn with me there if you would. Luke 16. And I'm going to read verses 19 through 31. Here are the inerrant, authoritative word of God that was written for our edification. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Amen. Father God, we uh, come before you to submit our hearts, our thinking, our emotions, our wills to your word. Father, it is our desire that you would be exalted, you would be lifted up, but also that we would be edified and sanctified as we consider this passage and some of the many other scriptures that relate to this subject. We love you, Father, and we continue to worship you. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to preach your word effectively, and I pray that your spirit would quicken that word to the hearts of each one here. May we be hearers, may we doers, may we be lovers of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So far, we've had about 22 lessons in this foundation series, and we've been looking at the kinds of things, issues that frame our worldview, that drive us, give us enthusiasm to passion, uh, kinds of things that enable us to figure out what in the world do we do in this topsy-turvy, crazy world. And so the question might come up, is hell really a foundational subject? Why do we need to uh, listen to this during this series? It's definitely not popular. It's definitely not fun to listen to a subject like this. And uh, it's one of the first doctrines that goes when people begin to slide down the slippery slope into liberalism because liberals just revile, or our flesh reviles against this doctrine. It is a hard doctrine for people to submit to. And um, the uh, evangelical uh, circles over the last 50 years or so have begun to abandon the doctrine of hell as well. In fact, I think it was back in 94 or 96, one of those two years, I was absolutely shocked when I read the statistics from a survey that was done, the Journal of Evangelical Theological Society, of their membership, 
and over or 50 percent, the majority of the members of that evangelical organization said they don't believe in the literal hell. And I had no idea how far gone uh, things had been at, at that point. And so I was planning to do a, uh, a sermon on this uh, subject, and as Providence would have it, this was uh, such a, a busy uh, week, and with Presbytery and everything, I decided I'm going to need to pull out an old sermon. Well, fortunately, I've preached on this uh, more than once in the past. So I decided I'm going to retool and rework uh, a sermon that you guys, uh, at least the oldies amongst you, are, are familiar with. And we're going to look at all kinds of scriptures beyond this, but one that's not in your outlines is Revelation 9. And I want you to turn there. This is a passage that is frequently overlooked. It's a description of demons that have been unleashed from the bottomless pit they've been unleashed from from uh, the fires of uh, of torment and yet it describes them as having not the slightest repentance they persevere in the rebellion against god and in their hatred to god if you've ever wondered why it is that hell has to go on forever and ever why can't god just you know maybe after a year or two or a hundred years you know just annihilate people and do away with hell why does it have to go on forever? Well, it's because sin goes on forever and new sins continually and new rebellions and blasphemies and new hatreds of God continue in hell and so they continue to need to be punished. But anyway, here is a case where these, uh, these demons have come forth and they're totally unrepentant despite the fact that they've been released from their torture. Uh, some people have thought, you know, if only somebody could come back from hell, you know, maybe a near-death experience or something like that and tell their relatives, all my relatives would believe. Well, the last verse of Luke uh, 16 says no way. They wouldn't if they don't believe the scriptures. And uh, if you want a book, actually he's written a couple of books along these lines. It's a physician by the name of, um, I think it's Maurice Rawlings, Dr. Rawlings, R-A-W-L-I-N-G-S. And he wrote this book because he has had to work uh, in resuscitation of thousands of, of people and he said there's been a lot of books written about the good experiences where people have near-death experience and they see the light you know and they they see heaven and they hate having to come back into their bodies but he says they neglect to tell the thousands of cases you know where where people are screaming and saying don't let me die the demons are coming to take me they're taking me into the flames you know and and screaming about uh, what's happening to them and so he records all of these things and yet, you know, after they're resuscitated, these people just forget about it and go on with life as if nothing has happened before. And so uh, here's a, a passage very similar, uh, Revelation 9, 1 through 11. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. 
They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. But in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Okay, so here are people. They're individuals, demons, that have been released from this pit. And we won't get into the eschatology of when that occurs. And yet there is no repentance. It's not that they have been revived somehow. They were alive. In fact, they were ruled over during all of that period of time by this demon prince by the name of Apollyon. If you look at verses 20 and 21, you will see that the same is true of those who are tortured by the demons. No repentance. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murderer, murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And then the question might come, if the doctrine of hell can't scare people into heaven, and if the doctrine of hell is such a, a, a traumatic doctrine, you know, to study, why do we need to put ourselves through the pain of looking at this doctrine? And I think it's a legitimate question. And so in the outline, I have started by giving several reasons why we do indeed need to study this doctrine. And the first one is personal. God says he will hold us accountable if we do not warn people uh, to flee from the wrath to come. He says in Ezekiel 33, verses 6 through 8, But if the watchman sees the sword coming, does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Now, a second reason that this doctrine of hell uh, should be taught on is that it's increasingly being denied. Uh, I alluded to Journal of Evangelical Theological Society, but our own evangelical network in Omaha has uh, also uh, uh, gone this direction. They've removed the word conscious from their doctrinal statement so that it no longer reads eternal conscious punishment because they wanted to accommodate and they said this, they wanted to accommodate evangelicals who don't believe in hell. Let me give you the statistics of why this is a serious problem. A study that was done by Northwestern University School of Education showed that only 31% of ministers surveyed said that they believed in hell, and only 20% said that they would ever preach on it. They're unwilling to preach on it. Now that was only a sampling of 500 ministers, so the margin of error is quite great. Another larger study was only one percentage point different. Only 30% uh, believed in hell. 70% said they did not. Another study of 7,441 pastors showed the following percentages agreed with this statement. Here's the statement. Quote, hell does not refer to a special location after death, but to the experience of self-estrangement, guilt, and meaninglessness in this life. Unquote. Now, here's the percentages of ministers who agreed with that. 58% of Methodists, 60% of the Episcopalians, 54% of Presbyterians. Now, our, our denomination believes strongly in that, but 
There are Presbyterian denominations that do not. 35% of the American Baptists uh, agreed with that statement, and they don't believe even in annihilation. No concept of hell that is in the future. Hell is simply the experience that we go through now. And so what do we do when we see that doctrine is being denied in the bride of Christ, or at least those who profess to be the bride of Christ? Here's Martin Luther's response. He said, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady in all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. There is a lot of timidity in the evangelical church. A third reason to preach on this is Christ obviously thought this was very, very important. And I think I included in your outline um, the references, 70 references to hell in Christ's teachings in the Gospels. There are 162 references in the New Testament as a whole, and that's a huge number. Christ taught children. He taught adults. Christ taught believers. He taught unbelievers. Obviously, he considered this to be a very important doctrine, something that needs to be taught upon. And our value of doctrine, I think, needs to be governed by what Christ thinks and what he does rather than by popular opinion. And popular opinion doesn't want people to teach on the subject of hell. A fourth reason is that failure to believe this doctrine, I believe, reveals and exposes a deeper problem. Luke 16 and uh, verse... 31 says but he said to them if they do not hear moses and the prophets neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead rebellion against scripture shows an underlying problem of unbelief in the heart and this means that the doctrine of hell is a wonderful tool to gauge whether a person is an evangelical or not you know there's a lot of people claim to be evangelicals and i've, I've asked them point blank do you believe that god you know, tortures people through all of eternity in hell. Conscious torment, absolutely not. But they call themselves evangelicals. It's really a way of exposing closet liberals, which is exactly what this doctrine is, and I hope you'll become convinced of that by the, by the end of the, uh, of the sermon. And you know, our own hearts may lack belief in this doctrine. And so this is a wonderful tool to say, Lord, there is unbelief within me. There are presuppositions that are framing my worldview that drive my thinking and my emotions far, and they don't come from the scriptures. They're coming from something else. They're alien presuppositions. A fifth reason to preach on it is that this is a doctrine that humbles the pride of man and it puts our own judgment. What is right? What is wrong? What is proprietous and what is not proprietous? It lays it at the feet of Jesus and says, Lord, I want to submit my mind and what I think is right and wrong to you. And too many times I think our minds immediately come up and say, you know, that just is not fair, that God would burn people through all of eternity. It does not seem fair uh, to me. And God's uh, response to that in Romans 9 is, who are you, O man, to reply against God? Does not the potter have power to do what he wants with the clay? God's uh, uh, attitude to that is not is not very much and we know that god is in the process of destroying idols and to humble pride and uh and we need to submit to that and i think this is a marvelous tool of sanctification the sixth point is related to this it says that the doctrine of hell also reveals and corrects a low view of sin and a low view of god's holiness 
It is not by accident that the age that has denied, and this is really unique in world history, in the last 2,000 years, it's our age that's begun denying the doctrine of hell. It's never been denied before on such a pervasive level. The age that has denied the doctrine of hell the most pervasively is also the age which has ignored God's laws the most pervasively. We don't treat sin uh, as a being a very serious thing anymore. We think, oh yeah, sure, I sin, but just ask God's forgiveness. No big deal. God will sweep it under the carpet. But sin is a big deal or there would be no hell. Sin is a big deal, or he would not have put his son through the kind of torment he had to go through in order to save his people. And so uh, when we meditate upon the doctrine of hell, it helps us to realize how hateful all sin is to God. It is a thing of infinite horribleness to God. The doctrine of hell is a doctrine that helps us to take holiness seriously, and it actually reveals how, how shallow our view of sin and of God's holiness is. Seventh. Uh, it will also make us appreciate our salvation all the more. When we realize the terrors that we have been snatched from, like a brand plucked out of the burning fire, it'll cause our hearts to be overwhelmed with gratitude to God. When we begin to meditate on how horrible, how infinitely horrible sin must appear to God for there to even be a hell, what it'll do is it'll make us realize, Lord, I hate my sin the more. It has a sanctifying effect upon our hearts, and it'll make salvation appear the more wonderful to us and, uh, and his love. Christ said, to whom much is forgiven, the same will love much. That's Luke 7, verse 47. Now, he was comparing the woman who was caught in adultery with the Pharisees, and he was not saying, here's a wretched sinner, and these guys are pretty good. No, the Pharisees were filled with sin, and he talks about the various types of sin they were filled in, but they were utterly unrecognizing of their sin. And so what he is saying is people who recognize the depths of their depravity, and then they get saved, they are the ones who love God the most richly. Those who have a shallow view of sin, they don't love God very deeply at all. And so our love for God will increase in direct proportion to the impact that this doctrine of hell has upon our lives. It's a very practical doctrine. Eight, it shows the insanity, the absolute insanity of a present-oriented attitude. You all know what present-oriented means, right? If you're present-oriented, it means that you are, you're more driven by your present needs and wants than you are by what's going to happen to you in the future. It's the very opposite of deferred gratification, which is essential to good economics, right? Deferred gratification says, I will defer gratifying my desires and my appetites and my wants and my leisures right now so that I can have in the future. I'm going to sacrifice now so that I can have in the future. Well, this doctrine shows the, the ultimate in present-orientedness in people's minds when they can sacrifice and risk eternal hellfire just so that they can enjoy some pleasures right now. This is a wonderful doctrine to confront our society in because our society is an incredibly present-oriented society. You know, people are constantly taking out loans that are not necessary, and uh, with these loans, they are putting pain upon pain and difficulty upon difficulty in the future just so that they cannot have difficulties right now. Our congressmen do not care about future pain. What they care about is present pain because of the voters that they're, they're having to deal with. And deferred gratification says, no, I'm going to sacrifice, I'm going to do whatever pains and difficulties are needed now 
so that I can have for the future. Now, we're not talking about salvation by works or anything like that. We're saying people don't want Christ now because it's inconvenient, but they're risking an eternity. It's, it's just the insanity of present-orientedness. Ninth, this doctrine gives to believers a sense of urgency to mission and an urgency of prayer for those who are lost. You might wonder, how, how, how can those two things go together? Because Romans 9 is, a, is a, pa- a chapter that says God is free to reprobate anybody that he wants to reprobate, and Paul justifies God in that. And yet you read the first couple verses of that chapter, and you see a man who has such a passion for evangelism, he wishes he could lay down his life for his brother. In fact, one of the most remarkable testimonies that you will ever read, and it's a, a testimony that tugs at my heart every time, I, I read that. Uh, he, he starts in, the, in, in chapter 9, he says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, why is he emphasizing that he's not exaggerating? I'm convinced it's because Paul is about to say something he thinks nobody's going to believe. How in the world could anybody put himself in this kind of a position? And it's God's grace working that in him. I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Paul is saying that he wishes he could go to hell so that his brethren would not have to go to hell. And if he could, he said, I would. Now, I have never had that kind of a passion for the lost. Um, It's something supernatural, something the Spirit of God works in his people. But he's saying, when he looked at the judgment of hell, and when he looked at the love that God had demonstrated and put into his heart, that love motivated him to want to lay down his life for his brethren. And it, it can stir up that kind of a zeal and that kind of a, a, of a love within us as well to snatch people from the flames of hell, as Jude words it. And so there's plenty of reason to study this doctrine. If hell is not eternal, then there is no basis in which we can say that heaven is eternal. Because heaven is couched in the same language, exactly the same language describing eternity, that hell is wrapped up in. And so if you deny one, then you've got to deny the other. Now, I'm not going to go through the entire uh, outline. Well, I'm going to kind of weave some of the material I've given on the, what is it, the back of the second page. It's, oh, it's all on one page, right? I made it small so you couldn't read it. Uh, there's a chart at the bottom, and I'm just going to try to weave some of that material in, but we won't be able to get through, uh, uh, through everything, and, that, and that, that's fine. I'll try to get the, the biggest of those uh, issues in. Now, there are several terms in your outline that are used to describe hell. And I'm not going to go into the technical details. It would just go way too long. There's only two, when you're looking at those those terms, there's only two issues that you really need to keep in your mind. And they they relate to where hell is before the second coming and after the second coming. If you can keep that focal point in mind, it'll help you to understand the different scriptures that come up. Now, before the second coming of Christ, hell is always referred to as being down in the heart of the earth. Okay? For example, Ezekiel 26, verse 20 says, Then I will bring you down with those who descend into the pit, 
to the people of old, and I will make you dwell in the lowest parts of the earth, in places desolate from of antiquity, with those who go down to the pit. In the Old Testament, Sheol is said to be down 62 times. And he was not talking about the grave. Some people even translate it as grave. It's never grave. Sheol simply does not mean grave. And there's a number of proofs that I can give to show that Sheol does not mean grave. And the first is that Saul, when he was killed, was said on that day to go down to Sheol, and yet his body never went to the grave. It was hanging above the air. So his body went up, his soul went down into Sheol. Let me give you some other uh, proofs. Um, and, and I should point out too, the Old Testament uses the word Sheol, New Testament uses the word Hades. One's Hebrew, the other's Greek, but they're referring to exactly the same thing. So I may use Hades and, and Sheol interchangeably here, but they're identical. Okay, people talk in Sheol. Does that sound like the grave? They weep in Sheol. They feel pain. It is described as the lowest parts of Sheol. Deuteronomy 32, verse 22. Psalm 86, verse 13. The depths of Sheol. Proverbs 9, verse 18. It's spoken of as being a deep place. An abyss. Luke 8, verse 31. The heart of the earth. Matthew 12, verse 30. And this Sheol, or, or Hades, is spoken of in Luke 16, uh, verse 23, is spoken of as being a place of pain. Psalm 116, verse 3. Now, that sure doesn't sound like the grave, you know, a place of pain. It is said to be a place of sorrow. 2 Samuel 22, verse 6, a place of burning fire. For example, Deuteronomy 32, verse 22 says, It shall burn to the lowest sheol. And none of these verses are in your outline, but um, if you want a compendium of some of these, I can, I can get you some. But it says, it shall burn to the lowest sheol, it shall consume the earth with her increase, and set on fire the foundations of the mountain. And so the fire that is experienced in Sheol is a fire that's somehow connected with the molten things that are burning underneath the mountains, he is saying. You know, they say that the center of the earth, because of the enormous pressure from the outside, is anywhere from 11,000 to 13,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, you'll cook at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, and uh, this is 61 times hotter than that. In fact, it's hotter than the surface of the sun at the center of the earth, hotter than the surface of the sun. And so that is hell before the second coming. It's a very literal lake of fire in the center of the earth. Now, at the second coming, it's different. Sheol, which is at the center of the earth, is going to be emptied, and it will be cast into the lake of fire, and then it will be cast away into outer darkness forever and ever. Revelation 20, verse 14 says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Now, we're not told what kind of a shape that lake will take. Will it be similar to the molten lava that, well, it's not even lava, it's more <laughs> molten than that, at the center of the earth? Uh, you know, on some planet, we're not told. Uh, some have imagined it like a giant sun that is a liquid lake, right? The sun is a lake, and yet it's on, on fire, and if that sun was cast out into outer darkness, you know, that could, fit, um, that could fit as well. Others have likened it to a massive planet, you know, it wouldn't even have to be the size of the sun, but uh, uh, where the weight of that uh, planet would have unbelievable temperatures uh, at the center and so if you're inside the earth you're in darkness if you're outside and you're cast away from this universe There's going to be darkness. So there's going to be fire and darkness all at the same time 
we're just told that hell will be transferred into some other lake of fire. We're not told exactly how that's going to be. Now, as far as the other terms are concerned, Tartarus is the lowest part of Sheol, where particularly vicious demons have been confined until Judgment Day. The pit is another name for Sheol or Hades. Gehenna is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Hinnom, which is a place for a refuse camp just southwest of, of Jerusalem. This is one of the grossest terms related to, to hell that's used in the Scripture. Jesus was taking an illustration of something that was happening outside of Jerusalem or happened in the Old Testament, outside of Jerusalem, to try to convey in some way the terrors of, of what hell is like. And what happened in Hinnom or in Gehenna uh, back in the days when the Moloch worshippers were there is they'd have this iron statue of Moloch and they would have a place underneath where it would be heated with fire and when the outstretched arms were red hot they would put their children or other even adult sacrifices on that and as that person slowly roasted to death they would hear the cries and the screams that were going from that person the scripture in the Old Testament used that uh, and liken that to what hell is going to be like. It's torture. It is torture. And it's an awful thing to think about. But then later it became a garbage heap where fires were burning and worms would decompose the refuse. And Isaiah 66 uses those symbols of worms decomposing everything. You could just see it everywhere, maggots and whatnot. And he used that to illustrate demonic worms that would torment people in, in hell. Uh, throughout eternity. But Gehenna or Hinnom, those are the only terms that are symbols. All of the rest are literal. Now, traditionally, uh, his, uh, theologians have believed that Sheol or Hades was a temporary holding place, but there was torment until the day of judgment when they could be dealt with and cast into the lake of fire. Now, if you turn back now with me to Luke 16, I want to look at a few other details about hell that we see in this passage. And every time I preach on hell, my, my heart melts, and I have to confess there are times where my flesh rises up and says, I don't like this doctrine. And it makes me realize how much I need God's grace and how much I need His wisdom. I need to think His thoughts after Him. I want my emotions to be conformed uh, to His. But look at verse 26. It says, Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those... From there passed to us it is fixed now let me clarify something this was before the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father and it was before the time when Christ took all of the saints that were in Sheol and took them to heaven now some people have thought saints when they went to Sheol went to the burning place but there are two compartments in Sheol in the Old Testament there was the lower uh, the lower Sheol or it's usually spoken of as the lowest parts of Sheol where the fire was and then there was upper Sheol, where paradise was. And even in this, in this passage here, you can see that the rich man is looking up, right? So he's in the lowest parts of Sheol. He's looking up, and afar off, he sees Abraham. And so there's this great gulf that is fixed uh, between them. <coughs> now, the fact that it is fixed uh, raises the question, who fixed it? Some people you know, act as if uh, 
this is something that was already there and God wishes he could rescue people from hell, but he has no power over it and people are going there and he's desperately trying to keep people out of hell. That is not the picture that the scriptures present, not at all. Uh, God made hell and he willed people to go to hell and I think that we need to come to grips with that. Matthew 25 verse 41 gives the words of Christ that he will utter on the day of judgment and he will say, depart from me, you curse, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was a place prepared for the devil. The devil didn't prepare it. God prepared it for the devil and his angels. Now, many times, again, people make it out to be God's greatest nemesis, but the scripture does not indicate that. And you know, when the reprobate realize that and they begin to think about the torment that God brings, it just causes rebellion to rise right up in their hearts and they express their hatred for God. Uh, rather than expressing love for God, that God would offer salvation full and free from that place. No, they focus on the fact that God has people in hell, and it causes them to, to hate and despise him. And if you're one whose heart rises up against this doctrine, you need to evaluate whether you even have the seed of Christ dwelling within you. Because if you are regenerate, the direction, at least, of your heart is that you want to justify God rather than justifying yourself. In fact, the whole reason that he gave this, uh, this uh, message here was because the Pharisees were justifying themselves and judging God's word. Look at verse 15. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He's saying popular opinion just does not cut it, folks. Uh, what's highly esteemed with men is not highly esteemed with God. And when we are saved, as Paul says in Romans, we let God be true and every man a liar if it has to come to that. Uh, we take God as he is and we don't make a God in our own image. We, may, we, we receive who he says he is. Now, hell reflects the glory of God's justice. Paul says it reflects his indignation and his wrath. It glorifies him. Proverbs 16, verse 4 says, The Lord has made all things for himself, yes, even the wicked, for the day of doom. Romans 9 says they are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he says that hell makes his wrath and his power known. So don't try to protect God by minimizing hell. Some people feel like, oh, we don't dare talking about this because people might think poorly of God. No, the doctrine of hell glorifies God in any way that God desires to be glorified. And we need to make sure we're aligning ourselves with the scripture rather than aligning the scripture with the opinions of men. But this is a place of separation from Christ. On Judgment Day, Jesus will say, depart from me. Matthew 25, verse 41. In fact, I think that's probably one of the worst features of hell. We'll be forever separated from our family, relatives, from Christ, from his presence. But many uh, evangelicals object to point F. They don't believe that it is a place of consciousness. They either believe that, you know, pe people are just going to be unconscious blobs that are floating in this, uh, this fire, and hey, they're unconscious, no pain, no problems, or they believe they're going to be instantly annihilated, and so there won't be any uh, lasting pain for them to face. So it's unconscious. And I mentioned earlier that Selnet removed the word conscious from their doctrinal statement. Now, the doctrinal statement still sounds like hell. Still sounds like, hey, they believe in hell. But they made wriggle room for, for, for liberals. Let me read you the statement. 
Whosoever is not found written in the book of life, together with the devil and his angels, will be consigned to everlasting punishment in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Sounds like a pretty good statement. And when I wrote the statement for Selmet, I had the word conscious in there because I knew there are so many liberals who want to squeak out from under that. Oh, yeah, it's eternal punishment. If they're annihilated, they're annihilated forever, right? And so uh, you can count it as an eternal punishment. And so they were wanting to accommodate people like Sot. Let me read you the strong words that some evangelicals had used against the idea of conscious torment. One author said, Even if this was written on every page of Scripture, I could not believe it, nor would I worship a God who would do such a thing. Whoa. Is that rebellion or what? I mean, his presuppositions are not being governed by the word of God. And that's why we say, by the way, that there's only two options in life. It's either theonomy or autonomy. That means God's law or it's man's law. You know, we're independent of God. It's either God's word that rules or our mind that rules and determines reality. And uh, many people, I think, opt for the second. So this evangelical said he wouldn't believe the doctrine even if it was written on every page of Scripture. Actually, I had a friend who said exactly the same thing to me. And he ended up eventually ditching all of the scriptures. Initially, he started saying, I don't believe in the Old Testament God because that God is a God of vengeance. And I started reading Revelation and some of Christ's statements. And he says, well, I guess I don't believe the God in the New Testament either. I said, well, what basis can you have? Well, he said, God's revealed himself to me. He said, are you sure it's not Satan? It's revealed himself as an angel of light because he would not, God would not contradict his own word. But um, uh, John R. Stott Uh, As another evangelical, he says, Well, emotionally, I find the concept intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. Well, I'm sorry, our our feelings have nothing to do with whether something's true or not, whether something's real or not. Another evangelical, Clark Pinnock, who used to teach up at Regent in um, Vancouver, I'm not sure where he teaches right now, But he uses even stronger words. He says, Everlasting torment is intolerable from a moral point of view because it makes God into a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz for victims whom he does not even allow to die. Now, I'd hate to be near him when the lightning bolt strikes, you know. He's saying, if God is like what we're describing God to be in the scriptures here, then he is a monster and he's worse than Hitler. Now, that is not glorifying to God. It does not submit to the Scriptures because anybody with eyes to see can see that this rich man is perfectly conscious in the torments of Hades. He's tormented. Well, torment's an attribute of consciousness. And one of the characteristic descriptions of hell you will find is torment, anguish, weeping, gnashing of teeth that occurs. It speaks of the sorrows of Sheol. They don't just cease to exist like theologians try to claim. They suffer consciously. Uh, they talk like this man talks in, in, in Hades. Ezekiel 32 records multitudes who have gone down into hell, and it says, The strong among the mighty shall speak to him out of the midst of hell. And that's the word Sheol. So they, they're talking. They're talking out of, out of Sheol. It goes on three verses later to speak of their shame. Shame is an attribute of consciousness. In the next verse, he says again, Yet they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. Verse 30 speaks of terror. And again, terror is an attribute of consciousness. Uh, Let me give you a few other references. Isaiah 14 describes the fall of the king of Babylon. And when he goes down into Sheol, he's greeted by other people. It says, The denizens of hell crowd to meet you as you enter their domain. 
And then it goes on a little bit later, it says, they shall speak and say to you, and they're describing to this king, ah, you've become as vulnerable as we are. They're people who are talking in hell. Again, some people think when you go down to hell instantly, you'd have to be destroyed. But remember that passage we read from the beginning, Revelation chapter 9, about millions of demons who had been tormented for who knows how long, and yet they weren't brought back to life, they were conscious. That ruler ruled over them. And if demons are not destroyed by the fires of the pit, why do we think that people will be destroyed by the fires of the pit? Second Peter 2, 4 says, God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. They're conscious, they're chained, they're weeping and gnashing of teeth, wailing, Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 13, 42. Only conscious people can do that. Revelation 14, 11 says they have no rest. You know, you might hope that people will eventually have so much pain they'll become unconscious and the pain will go away. They'll have periods of rest. But it says there won't be any rest. Revelation 14, 11, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And so to summarize this point, we've read of people in hell right now who can talk, who can move, are sorrowful, ask questions, weep, they have shame, they have terror, they do other things that, that conscious people do. Now there's another feature. Point G speaks of it as being a place of unending fire. Verse 24 speaks of the flames in Hades. And one ray of hope that we might have, and some people have taught this, is eventually the fame, flames will die out. But Matthew 25, verse 41, speaks of everlasting fire. Three times in Mark 9, Christ says, the fire is not quenched. That's Mark 9, 44, 46, 48. And even though theoretically suns can eventually run out of energy and burn out, if there was a massive planet, you know, the size of the sun, be, uh, it'd be, and I may be wrong on this, I've not looked up the science on this, but from uh, what I've read in the past, there would never would be a time when there would not be uh, enormous pressures at the middle, which means enormous heat at the middle of that planet. So it'd be an everlasting fire. But even if that's not true, there are other scriptures which speak of flames which come from God himself. He is the one who sustains those flames, and he never ends. He never ends. So it's an everlasting fire. Now, some have said that the fire is everlasting, the people are not. And uh, notice verses 23, 24, 25, and 28, that this rich man is not killed in this hot furnace. And so it's true that Matthew 25, 41 speaks of everlasting fire, but five verses later, it speaks of everlasting punishment. The punishment is not everlasting unless the person who is being punished is everlasting. Otherwise, it isn't everlasting punishment, is it? Punishment ends as soon as the person ends. Revelation 14:11 says, The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Revelation 20, verse 10, They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Forever and ever. That ought to have settled the question. No end to the personal torment. Now, some people have said that the forever, you know, can mean just an age. They burn for an age. And if that's the case, then we're only going to be in heaven for an age because it uses the same term for heaven. But even if that is true, we've seen all kinds of references that add language upon language to make it unmistakably clear that there is no end to this torment. One kind of odd expression that Jesus uses, and I'm going out of order here. I'm going to take point K is uh, this for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched now when worms eat our bodies eventually they die 
But he is saying these worms that torment the wicked do not die. Now, there are different interpretations of what these uh, worms are, but two things you can notice. First of all, the worm is assigned to us. Their worm. You know, and angels can be assigned. Uh, scripture speaks of their angels, you know, that are assigned to people, so it could be that. Secondly, it keeps working. Now, if the worm is the conscience, and that's what some people teach, then it keeps working. It never dies. If the worm is a demonic serpent, then it never dies. It never ceases from being their worm. So no matter how you interpret that expression, the fact that there will always be their worm means that they will never cease to exist. And so I've taken point K to prove as a subpoint proof for point H. Another thing that the rich man experienced was regrets and painful memories. Abraham says, son, remember, remember. I think memory will be a horrible torment to people in, in hell. Now, we are going to have all negative, bad memories wiped away at the second coming. Amen? Uh, we won't remember. The tears will be wiped away. We won't have any memory of those former things. That is not true of those who are uh, going to be in hell. That's uh, why twice Scripture speaks of the sorrows of Sheol. 2 Samuel 22, 6. Psalm 18, 5. Daniel 12 speaks of everlasting shame and contempt. Memory will be a terrible enemy for people. And then finally, hell will be a place where there is no mercy possible and without the slightest hope of relief. Twice the scripture speaks of the lost as being without hope, having no hope. And verses 24 through 29 dash all hopes in this rich man. He asks for mercy and there is no mercy. He asks for water and there is none that can be brought to him. But verse 26 says it's impossible to cross the gap from heaven to hell or from hell to heaven. It is not possible. And I think this has got to be one of the most pitiful cries that you can find in the Scripture. And he cried and said, Father Abraham. Now, that's interesting. He was a member of the covenant, and yet he was burning in hell. You can be a member of this church, and you can burn in hell. Your relationship to your parents is not your guarantee that you are saved. It's your relationship to Christ. Church members can go to hell. But he says, Father Abraham. Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here They also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. If your heart is not moved by the doctrine of hell, your heart is utterly insensitive. And I want to end by drawing some comfort and some application from this passage. First of all, eternity is where earthly wrongs or injustices are made right. Message to the rich man in verse 25. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Lazarus faced disease, and he faced poverty and pain and ridicule. And you know, when you guys are facing those types of things, it's so easy to become bitter become bitter you know that injustices have been done against you and you must not become bitter 
one of the things that can help you not to become bitter, and there's other things, steps you can take, but one is to have an eternal perspective and to realize, look, all of this is reaping for me an eternal weight of glory in heaven. God's going to right all wrongs. In fact, this is one of the reasons why Christ says you can leap for joy when you are persecuted because uh, great is your reward in, in heaven. Second, our eternal destiny is not what most people expect. I think eternity will come in as an absolute shock to many people who think they're going to heaven, they find themselves in hell. At the time of Christ, it was popular to think that the rich were loved by God. And in verse 14, it says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. They thought this is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Of course God favors the rich. I mean, these are the people God has been blessing. He's going to continue to bless them. And if they were to have put these people in here, they would have said, yeah, it's the beggar who is lost, and it's the rich man who is gained. And yet Christ indicates there's going to be a lot of surprises when people are ushered into eternity. There are good people like Judas that nobody would have guessed were reprobates. He was a good man. Uh, you know, when Christ said, there's somebody here that's going to betray me, their first reaction was not everybody to look over at Judas. No. They were looking at themselves. They went, man, these are all godly people around here. And they're wondering, is it me, Lord? I hope it's not me. They had no idea that Judas was a reprobate. He was a good man. He was involved in ministry. He prophesied. He healed. He went out preaching evangelism. He was a generous man. He wanted people to let's collect some offerings, you know, so we can give to the poor. Of course, he was skimming off the top, so, you know, it, was, um, it, it wasn't entirely altruistically that he was doing that. But no one would have guessed. That's the point. And maybe he did not know that he was reprobate. Lot, who would have guessed that he was saved? If that scripture hadn't told us, I don't think I would have guessed that Lot was saved. There are a lot of surprises when people get to heaven. You know the reason why? It's because we are not saved upon our goodness. We are saved because of the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace then beginning to change and to transform us. But when you begin to look at people and their actions and say, on the basis of that, they're saved, uh, you're, 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 you're going to find that that is something that will be a shocking surprise in eternity. And that brings us to the third point. Our eternal destiny is not determined by those things by which our society measures success and significance. People living at that time would have thought the beggar is an utter failure and the rich man is a success. I mean, look at the empire he's built. Look at the businesses, you know, he has started. Uh, here's a guy that's such a success in the world, you know, he'd be a great candidate for an elder in the church. And uh, yet God says, you've got to look at life from an eternal perspective. You've got to look with spiritual eyes and not be judging failure and success by the eyes of the world. In Christ's eyes, it was the beggar who was a success. Why? Because he laid hold of the treasure that no one could take from him. This rich man, he finally came to realize too late, he could take absolutely nothing that he had accumulated in this world with him, not a thing. He was the fool. He was the person who was not the success. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God's entrance fee into heaven is perfection, and only Jesus was perfect. We must cling to him. Fourth, our eternal destiny is sealed by a decision we make in life, and it cannot be reversed after death. Verse 26, Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, 
nor can those from there pass to us. There are no second chances in, in heaven. And if you are to face eternity with joy and with confidence, then you must make a decision in life. The rich man says, I beg you, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. The decision that affects all of eternity can only be made in time while you are still alive. And if you're a covenant child here and uh, you have never made a public profession of faith, don't put it off. Don't put it off. You need to profess Christ. You need to flee to him and flee from the wrath to come. You yourself need to lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust that it will be something that uh, will uh, motivate you and stir up your heart to lay hold of the Lord and come to communion. Fifth, the decision involves repentance or turning from our sins and a willingness to trust Christ alone and to follow him. One Old Testament verse that Lazarus would have been very familiar with says there is not, in fact, uh, Ken Cope quoted it earlier, there's not a man upon the face of the earth who doeth good and sinneth not. Another verse says there is none righteous, no, not one. One of the Psalms that Romans quotes. And so he knew that he was a, a sinner and those sins divide between him and God. And if this book represented my sins, and this hand represented me, it would have to be a book much bigger, but those sins hinder God from embracing me to himself. He would cease to be a holy God if he just didn't care. He embraced that sin to himself. He has to legally deal with that sin in some way. And so God, in the person of Jesus Christ, solved that. God the Son came down, took upon himself human flesh. He lived a perfect life, and he took our sins upon himself. Another scripture that Lazarus would have been quite familiar with in Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So our sins were transferred to Christ. God's wrath was poured out upon Christ. He was forsaken. He was tormented so that we would not have to be. And in turn, Christ gives his righteousness so now God can embrace us to himself. And so the question I ask of you is, have you transferred your sins to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you by faith laid claim to his righteousness and said, this is where I stand before God and I can stand on no other than the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not done that, I would encourage you not to even leave this room until you have made profession of faith. And after you have made profession to the Lord and trusted Him, I would encourage you to come to me so that you can publicly say it to others because the Scripture says, with the mouth, profession is made unto salvation. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would work in the hearts of your elect. That if there are any here who do not know you, have not put their trust in you, that you would stir up their heart, Father, to seek after those things that are eternal. That you would work in their hearts, O God, to desire you to hunger and thirst after righteousness and to be saved, not from hell alone, but to be saved from their sin. Father, I pray that you would manifest your spirit in our midst, that you would draw the youngest of our covenant children to a saving knowledge of you if they do not already know you and love you and trust you. 
And Father, I pray that strengthened with all might by your Spirit and the inner man, we would go forth with our minds aligned to your word, agreeing with your word, and boldly doing everything that we can to snatch other souls from the flames of hell and to serve you in this world to the best of our ability by the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you, Father. We love you, and we bless you for the salvation that you have given to us so full and so free. Thank you, Father. As we close our service out in song, I just pray, O God, that you would receive this as the very worship of our hearts that lay our judgments at your feet and take up the judgments of your word with rejoicing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.